Good morning. Uh, very happy to be with you this morning. Uh, you know, if you've been traveling along with us, you have uh, known we're going through our summer series, with is we're looking at the book of Colossians, and this is our series title, Invited, A New Way of Living. And today we're going to look at how Jesus invites us this new way. He invites us to live free from the weight of sin and guilt. Uh, really looking forward to getting into it this morning. Uh, first, um, from our pastors to ponder, we've been reciting it every week. This was from Colossians chapter 3. And it says this, it says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Just this beautiful picture that Jesus is there at the right hand of God. And Paul says, Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It says, When Christ, who is your, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just this beautiful picture that Paul says to um, keep our minds focused on the things above, the things that are yet to come. Not that he doesn't mean that we should ignore um, our, our earthly realities, but to really be led by what's most important, which is Jesus, what he's done for us, and the things um, we have yet to experience. And, you know, here we've just finished up chapter one, as Pastor Al did last week. And, you know, he talked about how we're invited to share the good news. And now as Paul goes into, you know, um, this next part of the letter to the Colossians, this is chapter two. And right at the beginning, he, he's Paul saying here, he's, he's saying that he's working hard for the church at Colossae. He's really striving for them, he's saying. And he also mentions a church at Laodicea. And he says that he wants them, the, the people who he's writing this letter to, the church at Colossae, he wants them to understand God's mysterious plan in Jesus. And just before we get to our focus uh, for today, he leaves off this one part in, in verse 4 and 5 in chapter 2, and he says, you know, I don't want you to be deceived by any um, um, crafty arguments by people. And it's very interesting that Paul says that, right? And this is what he leads into. And today we're going to look at um, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 6 through 15. So that's just following up on what I just summarized there. So we're going to look at what Paul is saying about how we can be deceived, about how that church can be deceived, and what can we glean from these inspired words of Paul um, today. So in chapter 2, verse 6, he begins this way. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He, he, he reiterates what he said earlier. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, it's a mouthful there and there's a lot. So again, Paul's writing this inspired letter to the church at Colossae. And he is saying there are some deceptive teachings that are kind of making its way into the church. And, you know, uh, scholars are not exactly entirely clear on what some of those um, deceptive philosophies or ways of thinking are. But Paul's saying it's influencing the church. And, um, you know, there are some theories about it. As, as we talked about in weeks prior, you know, they're having, um, they're in a culture that's maybe immersed with a lot of um, uh, worship and obsession, maybe with some of the supernatural, spiritual spiritual entities that are around. And then they're also probably mixing their Jewish culture that's there. 
And then they're also mixing their newfound faith in Christ and their new teachings in Christ. So there's a lot going on. These, um, what Paul calls these deceptive philosophies, and they depend on human tradition. And so there's a lot going on there. And, you know, in, you get this picture that the church is being influenced by the culture, and the church might be influencing the culture. And if we're honest with ourselves today, if you're a member of the church, the body of the Christ, the body of Christ, um, you'd know that we are influenced and we also do influencing by the culture. But Paul has this really um, interesting phrase in verse 8. He says, the elemental spiritual forces. So what's, what's that? What does he mean? The elemental spiritual forces are just these basic spiritual principles. It's like the guiding way that the world can operate but it's influenced by the unseen realm. And if you're familiar with the Bible, it might remind you of a passage from Ephesians 6. Um, it's here on your screen. It says, you know, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying in, in Colossians chapter 2, and again, as he mentions in Ephesians um, chapter 6, that there is this unseen realm that actually influences the way that we think and the way that we can operate to a degree in the, in the physical world. And that might seem, you know, out there, but this is a culture that is very aware of those things. But Paul is saying, okay, yes, this is true. There's an influence that maybe that this unseen spiritual realm can have. And the way that they're influencing um, the church in the, in the ancient culture, the Church of Colossae, is that they're actually um, changing the way they're thinking, maybe mixing some of the things that they believe about Christ, where they have to maybe bring in some of these Jewish traditions and maybe this worship of maybe angels or these other spirits. And so that's what their, their church is dealing with. The question for us is, what are some of the pervading falsies, uh, philosophies in our culture today? What are some things that um, are very... Um, rampant ways of thinking in our culture. There, there's numerous, right? One of the things I would say is, you know, there's definitely a sense of, um, there's a self-interest that's really rooted out of fear, right? Um, you know, we can tend to think, well, I could never give that much of my time or my money or, um, or anything because, you know, what if I run out of it, right? There's like a self-interest that we have, but it's rooted in fear. You know, um, sometimes we can think even in our relationships, like I can't show someone um, that much love because if I, if I express to them how much I love them, it's like they have the upper hand. They have, <laughs> they have the power over me because I've been vulnerable, right? Um, or, or this one, you know, I can't admit that I was um, wrong or that I made a mistake because if I, if I admit that, then I look weak. I look maybe inept or, you know, I look like I, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, there are some things I think that just are part of a culture that helps us, that, mean, that really pushes us maybe to have a lack of empathy uh, towards others too. And of course, there's a, there's a pervading philosophy um, that kind of having more of something will leave us fulfilled. And whether that is money or success or um, sex or food or just stuff, things, if we, there is this thinking, I think, that we can all get caught up in that if we have more of it, we'll be happier. Um, it will satisfy. And Paul's saying, uh, you know, all the philosophies that the Church of Colossae is dealing with, they are ways of thinking. They're influenced by the spiritual forces in the unseen realm. Now, we're going to look at 
I, I mentioned uh, just a handful of those, but we're actually going to look at maybe some more philosophies in our culture. I'm going to look at three that what I think are um, pervasive in our culture, and we have to just be mindful of them. So first point I have is the dangers of clout, tribalism, and religious tradition. Okay, so what's clout? <laughs> right? Clout is just this, uh, this idea, this whole this insatiable need for influence and popularity, this insatiable need to be liked. We can all be part of it, right? Who Everyone wants to be liked. No one wants to be disliked. Um, but we can get caught up in it, I think, in our culture today. And Jesus, he's, he's, an, um, he's not against popularity by any means, right? In, in the Gospels, it, it shows that, you know, Jesus is... Um, the, the message about Jesus, his popularity just started to spread. He was a very, very popular, uh, popular person. If he was, um, you know, walking the earth today, you know, he definitely would be verified. He'd have a, he'd have a blue check mark on his, on his accounts. And so he would be quite popular. He'd have uh, billions of followers. But so Jesus isn't against popularity. But this whole idea of clout really is just getting validation from likes and affirmation from people and people whom we don't even know often. And it can be actually quite harmful. You know, Paul says, um, he says that these ways of thinking, they actually are, they're deceptive. And not only that, he says they can take you captive. They're like a snare, right? And so here's the snare with, with cloud. As we're looking for our influence and to be more popular, um, it kind of gives us this dopamine shot in the, in the pleasure center of our brain. And when we don't get the response from a post or something that we've put out that we would hope for, then it actually leaves us feeling very dejected and depressed. And, you know, we can start to feel unloved or, or unvalued. And Paul says in, in Colossians 2 and verses 6, he says, you know, build your lives on the solid ground of Christ. He says, see your, see your identity and worth is based in him. And for us, that's our identity should be based in him and not on likes, not on people's other affirmation. Because these, these hits that we get from the likes, they're, they're short-lived. And not getting them can really hurt us. So that, that's one. Another pervasive way of thinking, I think, for us is tribalism. And that's this whole us versus them mentality. Again, as Paul says, these things can take you captive. It's, it's entrapment, tribalism is. You know, tribalism is entrapment when it really leads you to think that um, your preferred uh, social or economic or um, political worldview is a hundred percent right and the other person that opposes yours is a hundred percent wrong right there are all kinds of different um, economic and political worldviews and really none of them are none of them are without error there are some good things about them but really i would just say that some of them are just less bad than the others. You know what I mean? They are not these, um, they're not this way that we can say, oh, this is just a perfectly flawed, um, you know, political worldview. There's, there's nothing like that. Or, you know, capitalism or socialism or democracy. Some of these things might have some interesting aspects to them that can be beneficial and others can be very harmful. And so we just have to be mindful of that. And when we get into this whole us versus them mentality, we, what we do is we actually build these walls around us where we say, you know, they are the ones that are wrong and we're drawing a line, right? And we build these walls around us and we find out that we're actually the ones entrapped by this way of thinking. 
So we have to be very careful to not to otherize, categorize these other people so that they seem like inherently wicked or evil. They might just be have a different worldview from you and a different experience from you, right? Even for us who are followers of Christ, um, our religious practices are not even um, perfect, right? Christ is flawless, but our religious practices are not, right? So there's a way that Christianity is practiced in the West, and there's a way it's practiced in the global South, and there are probably some things that need to be changed about um, um, practices in both of these regions, and there's some things that we can really celebrate about practicing um, the faith of Christianity in both these regions as well. So here's another one. Um, religious tradition, right? And this is, there's two different really big pervading religious traditions. And it might be this whole idea of, um, you know, these, these ways that we can get trapped in, in following our religion. So uh, a philosophy or religious tradition in the Christian faith, if it makes us think that we need to pray more or give more or serve more to earn God's grace, that is a trap. That's a way of thinking that has really boxed us in. Christ's sacrifice is all sufficient. It's atoning for all of our sins. We don't need to add anything to it, right? There is not this thing. You don't have to continue to strive and just, and just you know, run yourself into the ground to earn God's favor and love in your life. That is not the message of the gospel. On the flip side, though, there's another philosophy that can be pervasive, and we have to be careful not to adopt it either. Um, and this is the thinking, the way of thinking that because God's grace is free, um, it means it shouldn't cost us anything, right? So what I mean by that, like, as we said, your merits, they can't um, earn you favor with God. You can't do more for God to make him love you more than he already does. At the same time, though, to follow Jesus might actually cost you something, um, right? There are... In, in following Jesus in this world, it can be actually very difficult to follow him. It might cost us ways. So God's grace is, is free, but it's not cheap, right? To be a follower of Christ is to really to embrace pain and learn from the master, the, the one who on the cross asked people to um, ask God to forgive the people who were taking his life, who were killing him at that moment, right? you know, it actually costs Jesus his life. And for us, it would cost us something uh, very real too. I want to show you this little picture of it. Um, you know, the kingdom of God is very interesting. Jesus often portrays the kingdom of God um, as like this dinner party. And it's this big party where everyone's invited to this feast and they get to feast at the table alongside the king. And in Luke 4, Jesus, Luke 14, Jesus is actually explaining this image of the kingdom of God to the people around him. And then we, we pick it up in verse 15 here. And there's this gentleman there. And he says, hearing this, this a man uh, sitting at the table, Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. And this is how Jesus replies. And we're going to get this picture of maybe that um, there, there is a cost to following him. This is how Jesus replies. He replies with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent to his servants to tell the guests. He said, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me, right? This is the person who is saying, you know, he's saying I, I have a real estate investment and I got to really make sure, you know, it's going to take a lot of my time. I really can't go to this big banquet. 
to the master, he's saying this. And another, in verse 19, says, I've just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Right, that's another one who, you know, he has business, and he says, I've just made this big investment in our production. I have to make sure it's operating well. I have to make sure, um, you know, it can, it's sustainable, right? And then finally, the last one in um, verse 20 says, Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. And this is the person says, you know, my relationships are really important to me. And, and I don't really have time for this banquet, this, this banquet at the kingdom of God. And then in this story that Jesus gives, right in the middle of these sections here, he says, um, the master is pretty furious about the response of these people that were invited to this banquet. And he says, okay, just go out. Um, he says to this servant, he says, just go out into um, the street corners and find those people who are, you know, they're poor, they're disabled, uh, they're blind, the people who have very, have little status in society. And he says, you know, invite them to my dinner party because the rest of these other people don't want to and they won't get a bite to eat at my dinner party. And we pick it up again in verse 25 of Luke 14. And it says, a large crowd was following Jesus and he turned around to them. This He's continuing along the story. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison, listen to this, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And in verse 28, he says, but don't begin until you count the cost. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, even your relationships, the people who you value the most, they have to be a very distant second to following Jesus. Jesus doesn't say we have to hate our um, family. He's just saying in comparison, it has to be a very distant, our love for our family, the ones who are around us, even those things, whether it be our business and our, our businesses, our real estate investments, our relationships, these things have to be at a distant second. And in verse 28, the first part of it, he says, don't begin to follow me until you count the cost because you might actually have a cross to bear. You might actually have to bear um, the, the symbol of your own torture, right? So there's a cost to it. So that, that's my big first point. The other points are going to be quicker, but we just have to be mindful of the fact that um, there are philosophies in our mind and even things like um, taking God's grace for granted can even be a philosophy that Im, Im, can imp, impenetrate our, our church cultures. So the second part of it here, as we go back to Colossians verses 9 through 12, um, we find that, you know, in Christ, we've had an all-sufficient spiritual procedure. Because in verse 9, as Paul is writing this letter to Colossians, he's explaining to them, he says he wants them to understand the mystery that's done in Christ, why we don't need these other things. He says in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. He says your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, this is a lot there. What is Paul saying here? First first and foremost, in the beginning verses in, in verse 9, he says, uh, Paul's saying that the fullness of God lives in the person of Jesus. It is amazing that God, the creator of heavens and earth, the creator of all that we know, the one who is over all things, 
he is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That is just amazing to comprehend. Like we could read that and we can gloss over it, but that is a, an immensely big deal. Jesus is God fulfilled. And then he says also, because of what Christ has done, we've been made complete. We actually can have fulfillment in him. And then, you know, Paul says, as again, we're talking a lot about the spiritual realm in these passages. He says that Jesus is the head over every power and authority, natural or supernatural powers. Jesus is above all of them. And then we find out, though, because of our relationship, for the ones who trust Jesus, um, because of our relationship with Christ, we're actually in relation to, literally, we're in relation to Almighty God. And so Paul is saying that that is you and that is me when you are in Christ. Paul's also saying in this big part, he talks about circumcision, which is this, this um, quite this big deal and actually in many biblical texts. And really, circumcision was this religious practice that had set the Jewish believers apart from the people around them. And Paul is here, um, I like how they put it in the New Living Translation. In the NLT, it, um, uh, they put it this way. Paul says that you have been circumcised by Christ. And really, it's in quotations, meaning that Paul's saying it's been this big spiritual act. And what it's done, it really has cut off your sinful nature that's um, enslaved to sin. And so it's really this picture that we're no longer... Um, enslaved to sin. We might be susceptible to it, but we're no longer enslaved to it. We can actually say no to sin now because of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. It's this beautiful um, fact that Jesus has made this all-sufficient spiritual procedure that we no longer have anything that we need to do. And so the important part here is for the person in Christ, your whole self isn't enslaved to sin, and it's been put off because we share in Jesus's death and resurrection, which is a picture of baptism. We die, we are buried with him, and then as we come out of the waters, we're um, risen again to new life. And finally, th this third part of what um, Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, um, it's really this image that life in Christ, because of this spiritual procedure that is done, um, Life in Christ means we can put down the bricks. And I'll show you what I mean here. In verse 13, as we conclude the, the last few verses, in verse 13 in chapter 2, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, so let's let's just back up as we get there. Again, at the beginning, Paul's saying, hey, there's some deceptive ways of thinking that have influenced the church. And we can think of the ways that we can be um, influenced by maybe the spiritual realm and the way that we operate. But Paul says, hey, there's been a spiritual procedure um, that Jesus has done that is all sufficient. There's nothing left to do. And because he's done that now, as we're wrapping up our last point, because he's done that, our legal indebtedness has been canceled, right? It's been taken away. It's been nailed to the cross, right? And so he has now disarmed the powers and authorities. And what that means is we can drop the bricks. 
you can think of it this way. Some of the bricks that we hold, these are heavy things that we carry along with us, things that weigh us down, things that um, act as forms of condemnation. It's like this, imagine us just carrying around this large um, rucksack of just heavy things that are weighing us down. Jesus says, Paul is saying here that Jesus has done everything for us and we can actually release these things. One of the things that we can release are the bricks of accusation. They actually drop in light of Jesus. We can think, we can see this in the woman caught in adultery. And, you know, there was this um, in, in the Gospel of John in, in chapter 8, uh, there's a story of how, you know, this woman caught in adultery and she's taken out to be stoned. They're going to kill her. And, and then you have to think of that. That's the culture that they lived in, that this um, the woman caught in adultery, she was facing this vicious crime. There's nothing, no mention of what happened to the man. He seems to have gotten off scot-free. But they're just coming down with this harsh, horrific punishment on this woman um, for her act here. We pick it up in, in verse 7 of John chapter 8, and it says, They kept demanding an answer. This is the crowd around him. They wanted, um, what should we do to this woman? And they know what they want to do. They want to stone her. So Jesus, he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I wonder what he wrote. So many people have wondered that. It says in verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up, stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful story this is. What a beautiful picture. The bricks of accusation, they drop in light of Jesus. In Christ, no one can condemn you. There are, we've all been wrong. We've all done things we wish we haven't have. But in Jesus Christ, no one can point the finger to say you are condemned. Because everyone has sinned. And that's what Jesus is showing here, right? If, if, you, if you're without sin, then you could throw. And none of them, of course, could because we've all sinned. We've all um, missed the mark. We've all done something that separated us from God. And, you know, and, and in Christ, we get this beautiful picture that we're actually called to correct the person gently in sin. Jesus says, I don't condemn you to this woman. And then he says, go and sin no more, right? We're called to actually correct the person called sin gently. That's in Galatians 6.1. Another brick that we can drop. We can drop the bricks of self-condemnation we've been carrying, right? In, the, in um, John's letter, the, the, uh, 1 John 3 verse 20, it says this, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This is saying that if our feelings condemn us, the regrets that we have, the things that we have done wrong, um, if our feelings even condemn us, God is even greater than our feelings and he knows everything. So the worst things that we have done, um, they're nullified in Christ. They have been taken away and nailed to the cross is what it says in Colossians 2, right? The thing that you think people would hold against you the most, the thing that you think that if people knew this about me, then they could never um, forgive me, right? The thing that you're struggling to forgive yourself over, it's been canceled, it's been nailed to the cross, right? So even our feelings, it says that God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. So God, he knows we are not condemned. So we can actually drop the bricks of self-condemnation. 
And then finally here, another brick that we can drop. The bricks of attack from the enemy have been rendered powerless. And, you know, as, as Paul finished up in 2 Colossians, he, he said this, um, he said this, he said this thing where he, where he said, um, and having disarmed the powers, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? It is this picture where in ancient times, a Roman emperor, when he defeated his em uh, enemy, he would actually bring him into the streets of Rome and he would parade him and mock him in front of, in front of all the persons before he was executed. And Paul's saying, it's like Jesus actually done that to the spiritual forces that are around us. They are being mocked because on the cross, um, he has canceled our debts, he has won. So what does that mean for the attacks, the bricks of the enemy? It says in Romans 8, uh, Paul says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Right? In Romans 8, 34, it says this, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. And more than that, he not only died, he was raised to life, and he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The attacks, the bricks of the enemy that he wants to throw at us, they are rendered powerless. These thoughts that we have, that you know what we've done is the unpardonable sin, that we fail too many times, that we can actually doubt God. You know, did God really say this? Um, all these things that the enemy brings up to us to make us question our salvation, to make us really question God's goodness in our lives. All of these things have been um, nailed to the cross. They have been canceled. Paul is saying. Paul saying that the enemy is made powerless now, is rendered powerless by what Jesus did. He's been made a mockery of because Jesus disarmed the enemy's attacks. So they can't, the enemy's attacks are powerless to condemn us. And you want to remind yourself of that today. Even all the thoughts that we have in our mind that can pop in our mind, they're not necessarily true. And they can be attacks of the enemy, but they do not have the power to condemn us. And so we get this beautiful picture here that all the things the enemy of our souls and his spiritual beings has um, uses to lead us away from a life-giving relationship in Christ, they don't have power over us. And so we see here that the cross was Jesus' victory over death, fear, condemnation, and guilt. What a beautiful picture that is for us for Paul. So that's what we're reminded of today. And so let's just pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, that... Um, Lord, for your inspired word, your word that teaches us, Lord, that there is um, there is a spiritual realm and they do have influence over the earthly realm, Lord. So help us, Lord, search our hearts for ways of thinking that uh, maybe we have adopted just in our culture and just in our way of living in this world that, that would could lead us astray from you, Lord. Also, dear God, help us to remind ourselves, Lord, that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, Lord, that you have perform this spiritual procedure um, that has just been done. So now we have life in you eternal. And dear God, help us also um, to realize, dear God, that um, in you, Jesus, we can actually drop these bricks that we've been carrying. We don't have to um, condemn others. We don't have to condemn ourselves, Lord. We can be um, soft on ourselves. And Lord, finally, we can realize that the enemy of our souls. His attacks are, are powerless against us because you say we are in you, Lord. So for the person who hasn't made that um, amazing, beautiful decision today, I pray that you'll lead them, 
Lord to a life-giving relationship with you. And then they'll be like how many of us are, just learning to live a life of following Jesus. And it, um, it's this beautiful life that is not free of pain, but it is the best way to live. And so we just pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.